Y'all can be seated. And I got kind of a pop quiz. You didn't know this was going to happen this morning, but I think it's okay. Even if you didn't have coffee, I think we should be all right. I'm going to show you two pictures, and I'm going to ask you which of these two things you see in nature. Okay? Here's the first picture. Ever been out in uh, nature, walking maybe through an apple orchard and seen that? Anybody? <laughs> Come on. No. Yes, I, I did see a couple heads shaking. I want to hear it. All right, you, you've never seen that. Let's, but how many of you have, have, have seen that? Okay. You say, why are you starting with this, Scott? I'm starting with this because today, what we know in nature, I want to say sometimes we get confused in the spiritual life. I'm going to talk about fruit in our lives, and I'm going to, going to talk about the root of the Christian life. So I think sometimes we get these mixed up. Paul, if you remember, just a little bit of review, we've been going through the book of Philippians. Back in chapter 2, he talked to us about what, what I called exerting some spiritual sweat, working out what God has worked in in our lives. Remember we talked about the idea that the Christian faith is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning salvation. That all came from Philippians 2, 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He did not say work for your own salvation. He said work out what God has worked in, paraphrase, right? And then last week we had these two great examples of two guys who worked it out. One named Timothy and the second guy, Epaphroditus. Now... After service last week, just a couple of things about him. I was talking with Steve Centeni, and we talked about how you're probably not going to name your boy Epaphroditus. Steve went a step further. He said, his name sounds kind of like a con medical condition. You know, like, where were you last week? I, I was sick at home. I came down with Epaphroditus. So I, <laughs> I love that. I told him I had to quote that. I also had to clarify something. When we talked about the amazing distance that he traveled to minister to Paul on behalf of the Philippian church, we said that it was 1,200 miles. I went back and revisited that statement. It was 1,200 kilometers, which is actually closer to 800 miles, typical American mistake. We got totally different measurements here, right? But just wanted to, to clarify that for you. But why do I bring them up again? They were really good examples of what we call Jesus with skin on. What's it live like, look like to have fruit in the lives of other people? And we want to be encouraged by that, but we have to be very cautious when discussing the role of works in the Christian life. That comes back to where we started with the fruit and the root. There are two extremes to avoid in the Christian life. One extreme is the wrong idea that good works don't matter. Okay, you remember James dealt with that in his book. You remember what he said? Faith without works is what? Dead. Right. That, that's one extreme to avoid. The one we're going to hit more head on today is the idea that we can somehow earn our salvation 
by the good things that we do. That is also a, a heresy to avoid. Paul hits that repeatedly in his letters, right? By grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So if works are the fruit of salvation, here's what I want to say before we dive into our passage. We should not ignore the importance of fruit, nor should we confuse fruit with the root. What's the root? Jesus Christ, his death, and resurrection. He is the only basis of salvation. And I want to talk about this because if we rest more in our fruits, the good works in our lives, than we do in the root, you know what it does to our assurance of our salvation? It leaves us in a constant state of uncertainty. Why? Because your life is probably a lot like mine. My fruit output varies greatly day to day. Right? You know what doesn't vary? What doesn't change? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe if we rest in the root of Jesus, we will find deep assurance of our salvation that will actually end up leading to more fruit because of the gratitude, grace, and joy that we are resting in, in him. Got it? That's why we're showing fruit trees before we start the message. Turn to your Bibles if you have them. Philippians chapter 3. And as Paul hits this head on, I'm going to walk you through five W's. Five W's. The first one is a warning. He's concerned about some danger lurking around the Philippian church. And he warns them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Look with me. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. That's an unusual thing to say, right? It's safe for you. Why does he say that? It's as though Paul, maybe you've been here at home. It's a dark evening and you hear something out in your front yard. Maybe a, a rustle in the bushes or you think you hear the doorknob jiggle on your, your door. And guys, if you're like me, what do you do? You go out there in your PJs and... Look around. Why? You want to protect your home from, from what could be lurking danger. That's why he says this is safe for you. Because there's danger on the horizon. He said rejoice in the Lord. Before we get into what the danger is, I just want to say that rejoicing in Jesus is one of the best preventatives to spiritual danger in your life. Right now, are you living in a state where you're rejoicing in Jesus Christ and who he is? Why is that a great preventative to danger? Because if you're rejoicing in him, in him, all the promises of God are yes. I think of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you're rejoicing in Jesus, you're going to be a lot less susceptible to looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places because you're finding it in him. You're going to be a lot less susceptible to doubt of your salvation because you're rejoicing in the salvation he provided. Okay, 
So what's the danger? Verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out for the dogs. He's not talking about pit bulls. He's not talking about Doberman pinchers. Anybody know who he's talking about here? He's talking about the Judaizers. The same group that he mentioned in the book of Galatians. You remember what they were going around doing? They were going around to to new Christians that Paul had led to Jesus. And they were going to those Christians, hey, it's not enough to believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection to have him as your Savior and Lord. You got to be circumcised too, just like Moses said. And not only that, you got to keep the whole Mosaic law. They probably thought they were doing a good thing, some of these guys, right? I believe that. If you were to ask them, why are you doing this? Hey, just, just trying to let them know, right? And why would they think that was a good thing? Well, circumcision came from God to the Jews in the Old Testament. You remember Genesis 15? He gave it to Abraham as a sign that he and his descendants were separated to God. So they probably felt they were doing a good thing. Did did Paul feel that same way? (laughs) No. No, that's why he calls them dogs, okay? In one sense, he saw them as dogs, kind of scavenging for the lives of people with this false teaching that they were bringing. He calls them evildoers. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's what tells us he's talking about this group pushing circumcision as a requirement. Listen to some of the things he said to this group that would add these works to salvation. Galatians 1.9, he told the Galatian church, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He said, people come preaching this, let him be accursed. Galatians 5, 6, he tells that same church clearly. He says, look, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And more to the point, Talk about blunt Galatians 5.12 talking about these false teachers. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. If they're going to come and push this false teaching on you, I wish they'd just go all the way. Wow, that's strong. Did you know that was in your Bible? Acts 15. The early church met together and led by God. You can read it. They decided at God's leading not to impose that burden upon new believers. Why? Because adding anything to Jesus as a basis for salvation is heresy and leads to spiritual disaster. That's why. That's what he's warning them about. Don't don't give in. It may sound good. Don't fall for it. Rest in Jesus. But then he says something that might sound strange in light of that. He says, for we are the circumcision. He's talking to the Philippian church. He's talking to believers today. And you say, how is that? How are we the circumcision? Well, listen, even in the Old Testament, the outward sign pointed to some spiritual realities that God wanted to be the case in his people. 
want, didn't just want this outward sign of separation to God. He wanted them to have ears separated to God that would listen to his word. He wanted them to have lips separated to God that would speak his truth. Most importantly, he wanted them to have hearts separated to God that would receive what he wanted to pour into them and live it in out. And Paul's saying that today, those of us who believe in Jesus and rest in him, that's who we are. And then he gives three signs, three things to look for in the true circumcision. If you're looking for the true, true circumcision, look for these three things. Number one, he says they worship by the Spirit of God. They worship by the Spirit of God. What's that mean? They, their worship is empowered and, and directed by the Holy Spirit. You say, how do I know if worship is empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit? Look at number two. In glory in Christ Jesus. Worship empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit always centers on the person of Jesus Christ. He's not just some fringe thing in that group. He is the core. Okay? Now think about this. What do you run into in a lot of cults, in a lot of false religions? Is it that they don't talk about Jesus at all? No. It's just that in many cases, he's out on the fringe somewhere. They'd rather focus on something else at the center. Maybe the afterlife. Maybe Mary. Maybe the law of Moses. Maybe sometimes even the more spectacular spiritual gifts to the exclusion of Jesus Christ. Spirit-empowered worship always centers on Jesus Christ. Every time I think about that idea, I think about something I'm so thankful my grandfather did. My dad didn't come to the Lord until he was 19 years old. And to hear him tell the story, he says it's because they were at a church as a family that did not preach the gospel. Pastor told a lot of moral stories and a lot of other stuff, but he did not preach Jesus. And my dad said, my grandfather made a decision for his family that we are going to go someplace that preaches the centrality of Jesus Christ and salvation in him. And as a result of that, my father came to the Lord. So the true circumcision glories in Christ Jesus. And finally, number three, they put no confidence in the flesh. What's that mean? Not resting in self-powered works for salvation. Is that not another telltale sign of many of the cults? Don't they focus a lot on what you do and what I do to the exclusion of the centrality of what Jesus has done? That's the, the true circumcision. So Paul warns them, don't, don't fall for this other stuff. Beware, okay? Next he goes into what I'm going to call a wonderful resume. He's going to be a little facetious for the point of uh, getting an idea across. He's going to say, hey, if it could be based on what we do, these guys got nothing on me. If it was based on what we do, boy, check out my resume that I would show God when I got there. Watch this. He he says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. First he goes into, you want to talk about religious rituals? Verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I got that one checked, and I wasn't just circumcised, it was as a baby. 
Some of you Judaizers probably didn't get that till later. I was circumcised as a baby. Okay? And he says, hey, let's talk about heritage, man. I got a heritage. If it was based on the flesh, check this out. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. He could probably trace his ancestry back up, which a lot of these Judaizers likely couldn't. I'm, I'm an authenticated Israelite, not just any Israelite. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if you know anything about the tribe of Benjamin, you know that's where the first king of Israel came from. That didn't go so well, so you may say, hey, give me a little more. Well, when the kingdom divided and Judah and Benjamin were together, Benjamin was one of those two tribes that remained faithful, at least for a little longer. It was, it was an esteemed tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew the Hebrew language and, and spoke it fluently. Probably not all these Judaizers did, so he had the heritage check. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Do you know he was a Pharisee before he came to Jesus? Religious knowledge. Those Pharisees knew the Old Testament, as we call it, backwards and forwards. You would not want to debate Paul on the Old Testament. Okay, he had the religious knowledge. Check. What, what about passion? He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. These Judaizers think they're, they're passionate in what they're doing. How many of you all ever hunted down Christians and locked them up and gave approval to their death? That was what I breathed in and out 24-7. I had the passion. So if it was about that, I got that down cold. And the last one, what about outward obedience? He says, as the righteousness under the law, blameless. Look at him. I'm guessing there are a lot of Jewish mothers that that hoped their daughters would catch his eye. Ooh, that Paul, he's a holy one. Yeah, I'd like. <laughs> so he's got this wonderful resume. He's saying, if it, was all, if it was all based on that, I got y'all beat cold. But then he quickly pivots. This is the third W, to what really matters. What really matters is Christ. It is Christ. Look at verse 7. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When did, when did that start? Started on the Damascus Road when he realized all of a sudden that he was on the wrong side of the equation. You remember he was going to hunt down more Christians in Acts 9? Three, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He realized at least two things at that moment. Number one, that Jesus was alive. <laughs> And number two, because his voice was coming from heaven in that bright light, that Jesus was also God. That's what led him to count all these other things as loss. Verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It was a matter of comparison. He realized Christ was far and above more important. So he chose Christ. 
Okay, we do this every day in smaller decisions too. We make choices based on what we value more. For, for instance, the first service I talked about the choice between Twinkies and a six pack and somebody told me I had to clarify I was talking about abs, not, not beer. <laughs> so I'm gonna do that this service because somebody's probably thinking out there like, why choose, right? I mean. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So I'm thinking about Twinkies and, and six-pack abs. You, you had one Twinkie earlier in the day, and you're in the pantry again, and you see that box of Twinkies, and you're thinking about that second Twinkie. You've got a choice to make, right? And if you decide, hey, those, those abs are more important, you're, you're going to choose the abs over that, that Twinkie. It's not because the Twinkie is necessarily evil. You've just made a choice based on, on what you see as more important. Excuse me. It's the surpassing worth of Christ. In other words, what we're going to see is he would no longer value these things more than Christ. He would no longer look to these things for ultimate meaning. He would no longer look to these things for salvation. In fact, it wasn't just these five things. Verse 8, listen to what he says. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he had suffered some loss. This cost him in his earthly life. Many of the Jews who idolized him before Christ turned to persecute him, stone him, etc. He, he did suffer quite a loss of esteem among his own people. But he doesn't just say, I, I have suffered the loss of all things. He says, I, I count them as rubbish. Now, that's a pungent Greek word. You look at what it really means, it means like food scraps from the table that you scrape off the plate into the garbage can, and sometimes it even means dung. He counted all this as dung, as garbage, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And, and I think about that, and I think about when he says all things, boy, let, let's open this up. If, if he loved Jesus so much that all those other things seemed as rubbish in comparison. Let, let's talk about life just a little bit. Do I love Jesus that much more than anything else that the other things would seem as rubbish to me? What about my possessions, my, my car? What about my appetites, even coffee? Ooh, ouch. <laughs> what about my wealth on that bank account? What about my home? What about sports? Well, let's be careful here. <laughs> be careful. I'm going to be watching that Super Bowl today and saying, go Bengals, because they're from Ohio and my Browns didn't make it. Okay, but I sure hope my love for Jesus far outweighs that love for the game. What about education that I have? I consider it all rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. Now, when you look at those things, it's clear not all of those are evil things, right? There are some things when you come to Christ, you got to just leave out, okay? They, they're to stay behind. Sex outside of marriage, gossip, uh, unrighteous anger. There's no question about those. But what about some of these? Some of these aren't necessarily evil in and of themselves. Well, when you look at even Paul's list of five that we went through, I noticed that 
when some of those losses were bowed to Jesus in his new life and then given to his purpose and empowered by his spirit, God used some of those in the work that he had for Paul. Think about it. Like the circumcision and the heritage that he had, this guy was appointed by God through all that to go into any city. He could preach one day to the Jews in the synagogue. He could go to the city square the next day and preach to the Gentiles because he was also a Roman citizen. God used his heritage for his purposes. What about his religious knowledge? Oh boy, when Paul showed up and started talking about the Old Testament, imagine sitting there as he showed how that Old Testament that he knew backwards and forward pointed to Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Oh yeah, and how's about his passion and obedience? Man, once he got that bowed down to the right master, uh, think about the ways God used his passion and obedience to advance the kingdom of God. So think about that in your own life with the things that aren't necessarily evil. How do I bow these before my Savior and say, Lord, you use these for your glory and your kingdom and watch out, see what he does. But why? Why does he count all this rubbish? Look at the end of verse 8. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You see, one day when we stand before God, and as the, the old EE people used to say, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? It all comes down to this. Am I found in him? On that day, you will be either in Christ or out of Christ based on your response to what he's done on the cross for your sins and his resurrection. We're going to realize at that moment that Jesus is not just some stop along the way. He is the way. He's not just an ingredient that I mix into my salvation soup. He is the bread of life. He's not just some item listed on my resume. He is the resume. Because if God the Father were to ask that, the only thing is to point to Jesus and say, my trust is in him. My trust is in him. Say, how do I get that? If that's what really matters, Christ, let me talk about the fourth W, the way to get it. 9B, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's faith in Christ. It's how you gain Christ and be found in him. So you say, what is faith? It can't be just knowing and believing up here, right? The devil believes that in God and in Christ. And he knows the reality of the situation. It's got to be something more, right? It's where you start to get in the idea of trust. Do I trust Jesus? Am I relying on him? Am I depending on him? And the decades-old illustration never gets old. Steve was talking about this last week. Faith is not looking at this chair and saying, yeah, it looks pretty sturdy. I think it's all right. You know what faith is? When I put my weight on it, count on it to hold me up. Is that what you've done with Jesus? You depending on him and him alone? That's how you gain Christ and, and be found in him. I want to close with the fifth W, the wondrous outcome. When we do that, what is the wondrous outcome of faith in Christ? 
It is unity with Christ. Verse 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I love that word know there. Again, it's not like I I know about George Washington because I just took a test on Friday. I know him experientially in my walk. Okay, and and Paul's not just seeing this as a one-time thing, like looking back to the Damascus Road. He wants to grow in his knowledge of Jesus. Okay, he knows there's phases of this relationship that he can grow into. I was thinking about phases in relationships this week. It it hit home because I took Jaden down to get his permit, and we had to take his birth certificate, and I'm like, man... I remember the day you were born. This is going way too fast. And I was getting kind of emotional. And part of it was because, you know, we got them at all stages right now. We got Luke at four years old playing with toy cars. And I was playing with him that same day. And we got Evan playing with remote control vehicles. And now here's one with the real thing. I'm like, oh, this is going way too fast. But I told him one thing that helped me that hit me is, hey, just as you guys spread your wings and, and go out there, this mom, dad, son thing that we got, it doesn't go away. It's just going to be, there's different phases of it. And I know I'm going to have to keep telling myself that over and over and over again, but it helped me some. We think about phases of relationships with humans. Have you thought about phases of your relationship with God? Just Not just, hey, I accepted him 20 years ago and I'm just waiting for heaven. No, I want to continue to grow and, and know him more and more. That's what Paul's saying. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, how many of us would say that? I want to know the power of his resurrection in my life. Yes, I want to have the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And wow, I think we'd all say that. But that's connected to something else in verse 10 that we might not so quickly raise our hand for. He goes on to say, and may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. Y'all know the sequence, right? Resurrection comes after death. Comes after death. When we first come to Christ, we died to sin, right? We're alive in him. But I think there's a way in which we experience this throughout our lives. Because what does he say? Becoming like him in his death. That was an ongoing wish of Paul's. So what was Jesus like in his death? If we want the resurrection, we've got to answer this. Well, the, the power of the resurrection, excuse me. What was Jesus like in his death? He was obedient. He was humble. He was selfless. He did not retaliate or revile in return. He entrusted himself to the Father. Paul even uses the word weakness of Jesus at the time of his death. I wouldn't even say that if I didn't read it in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul says he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. That's why you may find a Christian rejoicing in the middle of a trial in a way that the world thinks is crazy. 
I heard Max Lucado this week telling a story about a guy in his church who was, well, he said pastors aren't supposed to have favorites, but this guy was one of his favorites. He would sit in the front row every, every week. He was in his 70s, and then he came down with this heart condition, and when Max went to see him, So his skin was kind of hanging off. He had lost a lot of weight. He was tired, but he had trouble sleeping. And uh, Max got an unexpected surprise when he visited this guy. He said, I, he I hear you have trouble sleeping. And he said, that guy in his weak body just smiled. He said, yeah, but I could pray. He said, that's what I do at night when I can't sleep. I talk to Jesus. I talk to Jesus. And, and Max went on to say that, that guy, to see his eyes and the joy in him at that moment, you would have thought it was Christmas Eve for him. And he said in some ways it was because the next day he went to meet Jesus. In his weakness, he was rejoicing, just like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He had this thorn in the flesh and said, God, take it away. Take it away. But God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Remember that when we walk through the weakness. Because when his power shines through our weak moments, it leaves no question as to where the power came from. Save to those who do not wish to see it. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, after everything we said about salvation by grace through faith, some of you may have some questions here. This is an unusual phrase, especially in the English, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. First, the word resurrection here is unique. It's not just the usual word for resurrection. He added the Greek preposition ek to it, out of. It's a resurrection out of. And many believe what Paul is talking about is a resurrection of the righteous out from the unrighteous. Okay, maybe even the rapture he had in mind. But he says that by any means possible, I may attain that resurrection from the dead. Attain, is, is he saying that, that he wants to earn that? Because that goes against everything else Paul Paul writes elsewhere. Well, the Greek word for attain does not always mean achieve. It can mean arrive at or come to. I want to arrive at that resurrection of the righteous out from the unrighteous. So what about the by any means possible? Because when I read that in English, it sounds like he's thinking, what could I do to earn that, right? What could I do? No, no, no. By any means possible, Ralph Martin wrote of this and he helped me with this. This goes back to the tug of war he had earlier in the book. He didn't know as he sat under house arrest whether he was going to be released and go see these Philippians or if he was going to remain there and die executed as a prisoner. And Ralph Martin believed that that by any means possible is, hey, whichever way it goes, whether I'm executed or I get out, someday I want to arrive by faith in Jesus Christ at that resurrection. Of the righteous. That's what he was looking for. So how do we close? I want to go back to that picture with the apple at the bottom. And I just want to ask us if we got this straight in our spiritual lives. Because we got it right in our natural lives. 
We don't see that in nature. What we see in nature is the next one. So when it comes to your assurance of salvation, believer, what are your eyes primarily focused on? Is it fruit or is it the root of Jesus Christ? Last week we shared that creed song. You remember the chorus? I hear a thunder in the distance, see a vision of a cross. I feel the pain that was given on that sad day of loss. A lion roars in the darkness, only he holds the key. A light to free me from my burden and grant me life eternally. And when we talk about that lion roaring in the darkness, one of my favorite things that he roared from the cross that day was that little phrase, it is finished. It's been well said that two letters separate Christianity from most of the cults and religions in the world. The letters N-E. Why? Because most religions and cults, you talk to them about how can I know I'm right with God, they're going to tell you some form of do, 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 do. You come to biblical salvation, the answer is done. It is finished. If you want deeper assurance and growth in your salvation, get to know the finisher. Get to know the finisher. He is the root who will lead to the fruit. Please don't get it backwards. Father, thank you for the ways you prepared Paul to present this message. He was uniquely equipped in history to share both sides of this. If ever there was a man who could have claimed it was by the flesh, it was him. But that Damascus road showed him the truth. It shows us the truth. Lord, I pray for any who came in here feeling as though they've gone too far for this message of salvation to be for them. May they remember Paul a persecutor of Christians. Your grace to him was an example to all of us. Anyone in this room that turns to Jesus in faith, his death on the cross and his resurrection, embracing him as their Savior and Lord today, can know they are right with you. Draw them home, Father. And if any of us have got this equation mixed up, may we start it by faith, but like those Galatians, we're hearing other messages about our works, and we're becoming uncertain. Lord, bring us back to the beauty of the cross. We want to bear fruit, but we want to do it out of gratitude, not out of some fleshly attempt to earn your favor. That's filthy rags. But when it comes through Jesus, by the Spirit whom he sent, it's a beautiful offering of praise to you. Please drive the truth of the root of Jesus deep into our hearts. And bear the fruit you wish by the Spirit this week. Even as we take our offering this morning, Lord, I pray it would be just an offering that comes from gratitude, worship, surrender, out of thanks for all you've done. It is finished. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.